Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Well, good morning. Last week, we finished a four-part series on Luke's summary of the Sermon on the Mount. And this week, we're starting into a new section, but really, this is we're, we're going to go right back to the Sermon on the Mount because I believe, and I'm going to make a case for this, that what we see in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is the Sermon on the Mount applied. It's we, we hear Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount, and we see an example of how we should live our lives in a very unlikely person being a centurion. And so I'm going to make a case for that. I'm going to point often back to Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 49, which was his account of the Sermon on the Mount. I might point even to Matthew chapter 5, verses, uh, sorry, chapters 5 through 7, uh, because both of these, immediately following both of these sermons, Matthew 5 through 7 and Luke 6, verses 20 to 49, is the account of the centurion. And I believe that the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, put this here after the Sermon on the Mount to teach, to point to him as somebody who we should follow as an example. So I'll make a case for that, but first let's go ahead and dive in. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This man, the centurion, amazed Jesus, which is in itself Amazing. There's only two times in all of the Gospels where we see Jesus being amazed. The first time is in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus goes to Nazareth and he starts teaching. And what's the response? It's like, who's this guy? This, this is the carpenter's son, isn't he? And they reject him. And Jesus in Mark 6 verse 6 is amazed at their unbelief. 
And then this is the other time where Jesus is amazed. He's amazed at something positive. This is the only time in all of the Gospels where Jesus is amazed by something positive, and it's the centurion's faith. And the reason why he's, we, we can get into semantics about this. Does Jesus know that this is going to happen? Let's just take it for what it's worth. It's in scripture. Jesus was amazed, and he was amazed because this man's faith is amazing. And so before we get into the faith, and before we get into examining, remember what Michael preached last week about a house built on a firm foundation, a house that is dug down deep. I believe that that's the centurion. He is a house that's built on a firm foundation. I want to take a look at the house itself, and then I want to take a look at the foundation. But the first thing that I want to ask before we get into any of this is, who is the centurion? What can we know about the centurion? What even is a centurion? And I think most of you would know that a centurion is a Roman soldier, a military man, a servant of Caesar. But the first thing that I want to point out about the centurion is that at least when he came to Capernaum, at some point, whether as a soldier or as an officer, he was the enemy. The centurion in the, Jewish, the Jews' eyes, in Israel's eyes, he was their enemy. He is, centurion, the highest possible non-commissioned officer in an army, in the, in the Roman army, which means he didn't go to West Point, you know, he didn't go to officer candidate school. He came in at the lowest possible rung and worked his way up to the highest possible level that he could work his way to. And centurion, the word for centurion has the same root as century, which means that he commanded, according to everything that I read, he commanded an army about a about, about hundred, a unit of a hundred, give or take. Some had more, some had less. Um, and he rose through his ranks by a few things, by exemplary fighting, by combat, by loyalty to Rome, and by experience. He had to be at least 30 years old to be a centurion, which I would assume that their life expectancy for a Roman soldier wasn't really all that long. So he was one of the more experienced men in Capernaum, at least. But here is what made the centurion really an enemy in the eyes of the Jews is that he was sent there wherever he was sent from, whether that was from Rome. You know, he sailed across the Mediterranean Sea, made a day's journey to the Sea of Galilee, which is where Capernaum was. I'm going to mirror myself. And he came there, whether it was from Rome or from a conquered land where he was conscripted into the army, or maybe even he was a Samaritan, which would have added, you know, an extra wrinkle in there. Um, he was sent there for two reasons. One would be Pax Romana, to ensure the peace, to keep the Roman peace, the peace of Rome. And so how do tyrants keep peace? Do they do so in peaceful ways? No. If there is rebe rebellion, it was his job to bring about peace in any way that he could think about to bring about peace, which often might have included violence if there was rebellion in this particular region. But second, the second reason why he was there, and perhaps the more egregious sin in the sight of the Jews in Capernaum, was that he was there to make sure that taxes were collected. He wasn't a tax collector himself, but he made sure that the tax collectors collected taxes. Big sin. 
Big no-no in the eyes of the Jews. Big thing that, that he, what I'm saying here is when he got there at least, whenever that was, he had already been dug in a hole. And somehow he worked his way out. So he came there as a servant of Caesar, as a servant of Rome, and sometime between when he came there, because he's a foreigner, he came there, sometime between when he came there and this account, instead of, or along with, instead of whatever, being a servant of Caesar, he bowed his knee to the true king, the king of kings. And he was transformed. And one more thing before we move on, this animosity, his being an enemy at some point at least, was not a one-way street. It wasn't just Jews hating Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews just as much. So he was their enemy. And I'm thinking, again, back when he first arrived in Capernaum. But they were also his enemy. And yet... And yet, this man, the, the centurion, is distinguished by his love. We see a man in the centurion who loves in a transformed kind of way. So first of all, we see that he loves his enemies. He loves the people of Israel. Something changed in his heart while he was there. He was transformed, and he started loving Israel. What does it say, verse 4? Do I have that here? I don't, but, okay. Oh, wait, I have, I have verse 4. Yes, of course I do. Um, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. You know, here's, here's a proof, any, you know, any proof that do you love your enemies? If your enemy says that you love, you love them, then that's, that's a good sign that you love your enemies. But, all right. Pointing back to the Sermon on the Plain, what does Jesus command? He says this, verse 27, chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. There's my notes. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. Love your enemies. We see here in the centurion. Someone who has applied this well, he has loved his enemies, and they know that he loves them. He dug himself out of that hole that I was talking about. He built up that goodwill, and now they know that he loves them. But not only that, he loves, he's distinguished by his, by his love, so he loves his enemies. He loves the Lord. What else does it say in verse 4? He is the one who built us our synagogue. He is the one who built us. It's an emphasis that he, there might have been other people, but he is the primary person who built them their synagogue. Why did he do that? Was it purely altruistic or was it something else? I think this, no, I know this is something that we all take advantage of, that we just take for granted. Now think about this. We have the word of God from beginning to end in our hands, at our disposal. We can examine it. We can search it all we want. Did he have that same luxury? Of course not. He didn't have his own personal Bible. So for him to build a synagogue, well, what do they do in a synagogue? You know, they open a scroll, and they read it, and they teach and apply, and that's essentially it. They do a lot of reading of Scripture because they don't have their own Bible. So for this man to build a synagogue, 
It's like, I'm sure he wasn't allowed to sit in the front row. I don't know the customs of that. But he was there to learn to receive the word because he hungered and thirsted for it. He loves his Lord. And then third, so he loves his enemies. He loves God. He loves his slave. The word here for servant is doulos. It can be used as slave or servant. But he loves his slave. This is a likely, I'm not going to get into this for the sake of time, likely about a a young teenage boy, the servant is, and he loves him. What does it say? Verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. If you have a different version, if you were to read 20 different versions, I think in 10 of them, what you would see are the words highly valued, and in the other 10, you'd see the word dear, that this was a dear servant. I think for us reading these words highly valued, we would see like just, you know, common value, but we wouldn't quite catch that intimacy there, that this is a dear servant of his. Uh, the word for translated highly value or dear is used one other time in the New Testament, and that is 1 Peter 2 verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So highly valued, dear, precious. This servant is, this slave is a dear, a precious There is some level of intimacy there. He loves his servant. And the servant who is sick, you know, according to Roman law, he actually had the right, when he became sick near the point of death, he had the right to kill his servant. I mean, think about it, just cold, hard Roman law. This servant is a a young man who was once a productive member of my household, once adding to, to my worth, and now he's sick and in bed. He's not only not adding to my worth, but he's taking resources because other servants of mine have to take care of him. So by law, he could have, it was within his right to be like, it's over. But he doesn't do that. And I believe the reason why he doesn't do that and why he actually loves his servant, aside from the fact that he was transformed, is that he sees he was in worse condition. His soul was in a worse state, and he realizes that, than his servant. Instead of dying, the centurion was dead in his trespasses and sins. And yet, God, of all people in Capernaum, God chose him and saved him and gave him life. How much more, when you've been given such a great gift, how much more could you do the same, should you do the same? for somebody who is supposedly beneath you. So we see all these things, and and here is a really fascinating aspect about this whole thing. The fact that this is happening in Capernaum, of all places, Capernaum. If you've read your Gospels, this is, which I'm sure, you know, most of you have, if you haven't, no worries, you know. But Capernaum, does that sound familiar? Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover this where Jesus pronounces judgment on certain cities that did not repent and believe. Capernaum is one of those cities. And not only that, but Jesus, he has some really harsh words for Capernaum. He says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, 
it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What was the sin of Sodom? Not that. The sin that you're most likely thinking of. That is, that's not the sin of Sodom. The sin of Sodom, according to Ezekiel 16, is their excess, their greed, and their pride. And it's mentioned twice, their pride or haughtiness. That's the sin of Sodom. And that sin gave birth to a bunch of heinous things that some of those are recorded in Scripture and many, many of them are not. But they were exceedingly proud. And the reason why it's, it's brought up in, in Ezekiel 16 is that Ezekiel, through the Holy Spirit, is saying, Israel, you are worse than Sodom. Your sins are far worse than Sodom. And here we are again, Capernaum. They know, they have Ezekiel. They know Ezekiel 16. And, and they're hearing this again. Capernaum, you are worse than Sodom. If these works that I had done in Capernaum were done in Sodom, Sodom would still be standing. They would, still be, they would have repented by now. So Capernaum, their sin, their pride is a worse kind of pride. It's religious pride. And it's a kind of pride that has all the externals of religiosity, and yet inside it's full of death. This is a city of death. And of all places, we see God give life to perhaps the, least, the last person we would expect to receive life, a Roman soldier. It's amazing. I mean, you know, I would be more amazed by this, but isn't that just kind of what God does? And we can see so many examples throughout the Bible. We see Paul. We see he chose Jacob. He chose Isaac, Joseph, the 11th born, I think. I think about myself, like, why am I? God, why did you choose me? I think about many of you, and it's just, that's, that's who he is. He does what he does, and I'm thankful for that, you know? And so, one more thing about the centurion that we can see about him as a man is that he is a humble man. He's a humble man. When I read, there were two times that I paused, and I paused to, to get to this point. And it's simply this. Back to chapter 7, verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. He is worthy. These are those whitewashed tombs saying something that is untrue to Jesus. They think they're worthy, they think the centurion is worthy, and they tell Jesus something that's not true. He is worthy. But then, verse 6, we see an accurate assessment of who the centurion is. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy. He knows his God. They don't know God. He knows his God. He sees his holy God, who has been given a great deal of authority, all authority with hindsight, we can say that. But he sees God for who he is. He calls him Lord. 
And he knows, looking at his sin, seeing his sin, he knows that he is not worthy to have Jesus come into his house. I am not worthy. Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6, 20 to 21. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This man, uh, Matthew 5, verse 3, says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This man is a poor man. He's very wealthy in the world's eyes, but he sees himself as a poor man. He is a hungry man. He built a synagogue so that he could be fed by the word of God. He is a man who is weeping. He reminds me so much of the tax collector you know, beating his chest. Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. This is a man who, who sees God, and he can in turn see himself and, and knows that he is falling far short. So all those things, everything I just said, his love for his enemies, his love for God, his love for his slave, his humility, again, this is a house that is dug down deep on a firm foundation. That's not the foundation, that's the house. And so I want to ask this question and examine this. What is the foundation? And here's what I'll submit to you. This man knows God in a way that those around him do not know him. In this case, it's, it's his authority. He knows God. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect in their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So what am I not saying by, by saying, by referring to this knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness? I am not saying the kind of knowledge that puffs up. I am absolutely not saying this. I'm not saying knowledge of basic facts of the world. I'm not saying knowledge of different theological terms that scholars argue about. I am saying that this man knows God. He knows Jesus' authority in a way that nobody else does. I mean, compare him to the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and the Pharisees. You know, he, Jesus makes a, a chord. He whips the money changers out of the temple. And then right after that, they approach him, the elders of the Jews, and they, and they ask Jesus a question. Says, By what authority are you doing these things? You ever wonder why Jesus never answered that question? Because that's not a question. It's not a question. They're, they're, they're saying, Jesus, you have no authority. And because they believe Jesus has no authority, there is no way for them to bow the knee, to humble themselves. Because in their eyes, he's just a man, or a liar, or a false prophet, or something else. But they have this fatal flaw where they see that Jesus has no authority. And if they remain that way, well, then they died in their sins. And then, but even not just the scribes and the Pharisees, comparing him to, to Jesus' disciples, I would say that this man, the centurion, understands something that, that at least that they're, they're learning. You know, not that they, they already know. So, I mean, think about this. They learned, the, the, the apostles, they learned more and more about the kind of authority Jesus had throughout their lives. Remember, he was sleeping in a boat 
Jesus was. He was sleeping in a boat. The storms raged, and they woke him. And then Jesus calmed the storms and the sea, and they marveled at him. And they learned something about Jesus that day. Even the wind and the seas obey him. So they were learning more and more. The centurion was, was further along. And, they, and, you know, even the resurrection, he rose from the grave and he had power over death. And they learned even more then. Jesus has authority over death. So I want to ask you something. Do we need to believe that Jesus has authority in order to be saved? I think for most of us, if you think about that for like five seconds, you'll, you'll come to a kind of answer that I came to, which is like, duh. You know, now I want to be clear, my four-year-old son who wouldn't be able to write down on a paper the definition of the word authority, I'm not saying he has to do that for me to say, all right, you know, it's time for you to get baptized. Um, that's not what I'm saying at all. But there has to be something in him that would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, he has to know and he has to, he has to know. But think about if Jesus had no authority, then none of this is true. It's like Thomas Jefferson was right to cut those words out of his Bible. None of this is true. These miracles that happened, they didn't actually happen. And if he has no authority, he's not Lord. He's just a man. He's a liar. And if he has no authority... The resurrection never happened. And when we die, we will die in our sins. But he has, Matthew 28, 18, the last words that Jesus said before he ascended to heaven, he has all authority. Do you live your lives in such a way that Jesus has all authority? I was going to go one way, and then I, I was praying over there, and I think I'm going to go a different direction. I want to share an example of, of a man who I believe, this is in my life, understands that better than I do. So I was, I had a, an item listed on Facebook Marketplace, this was a few months ago. And this man, like, is weird. He sent me the money to pay for it, and then he was like, I'll come by whenever. And I sent it on Venmo, come by whenever. So then he came to pick it up. And the day that he came, I had a fever. It wasn't COVID. It was just, I was, I had a fever. And so when he came, I needed to explain something to him about the, the item that he bought. And I, I, I was, as soon as I opened the door, just so you know, I'm sorry, I have a fever. Um, I would encourage you to keep your distance. And... This man, he doesn't, doesn't know anything about me. Um, really sweetly just took a step forward, put his hand on my shoulder, and prayed to Jesus that Jesus would heal me. And I, I want to tell you this as someone who, I believe that Jesus can answer that prayer, and, and you know, um, I believe that that stuff still happens, absolutely. But I, I generally, if I were sitting in your seat, I generally would hear a story like this and, and think and be a little skeptical, just a little skeptical, you know. But what I want to tell you, when this man prayed, I, I wasn't here thinking about his theology. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? What's your views on baptism? 
I just, I was so thankful because for all he knew, I, I could have been somebody who hates God. I was like, hey, get your hand off me. But I, he still had the, the faith and the courage to put his hand and pray to Jesus. And um, I, I want to tell you, my fever left me immediately. This man had the faith. And if he had the faith to essentially do what the centurion was doing, Jesus, say the word, and he will be healed. Jesus, heal this man. He had the faith. He, he has this, he understands Jesus is, is authority. Because if you reverse the situation, I'll, I'll tell you, would I have even thought to put my hand on his shoulder and pray for him? But then I wonder, would I have even had the courage? And I don't know. I, I, I just, I hope that, that one day I can say, I can be in a situation like that and be like, Jesus, heal, heal this man or woman. But this man understands Jesus. He understands his authority just like the centurion does. And I, I'm so thankful for that, that he, I mean, I would have eventually healed, but God in his mercy chose to hear this man's prayer, which was so faithful and sweet. So the centurion, knowledge of the truth, his knowledge of Jesus's authority allowed him to lower himself, to humble himself in a way that others could not allowed him to have the faith to say, Jesus, say the word, and he will be healed. There's plenty of examples in scripture of this. We have Isaiah in the temple, knowledge of the truth. He sees God, Isaiah chapter 6. He sees God, he sees the seraphim flying around, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what's his response? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He sees God. And this happens. What is this? This is, this is the life of a Christian. This is sanctification. This is the centurion. This is God in man. This is the starting point, and you are on this path right now. I just want to encourage you even more. Further along, God and man, God and man, the more you come to know God, the more he will be elevated to his proper position, not elevated, more in your mind at least, and the more you will see that the gap between you is so great, and there is a wide gap. I want to share one more thing, an encouragement to you. Something similar that, that happened to me. So I was, I've got to take you back to 2008. I had been married to my wife, Sarah, for about a month. I was on my third year on staff with crew at the Ohio State University, sorry. <laughs> and um, the previous year, I, uh, an intern and I went into two dorms and um, raised up a, you know, some Bible studies, the two dorms that didn't have Bible studies. And then he left, and I was here with like 16 guys, and I was overwhelmed. I was like, man, what in the world? This is ridiculous. I just got married, you know? I want to enjoy my, my life. Um, and I was enjoying my life, I want to be clear about that. But um, I, I, was, I really was just like, I want to teach 
these men about Jesus. I want them to love Jesus. And so I did kind of a self-examination, and I was like, all right, where, what, where, am I, where do I need to learn? I need somebody to teach me some things here. And, and I, I decided I, I don't quite understand enough about sin. Maybe I'm, I'm just flippant about it. I don't know. That was just an intuition I had. So I was like, all right, I'm going to read this book. Or sorry, no, I'm going to. There was this guy who I read a sermon of his when I was in English literature class in high school before I became a Christian. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I was like, I bet that guy has something to teach me about sin. And uh, oh boy, did he ever. So I read a different sermon of his on, uh, on man's natural enmity towards God. And in that sermon, he, he describes some words that, that are true of us before we became Christians. And, um, and, you know, he pointed out Colossians 1.21, which was on the screen a few weeks ago. The ESV says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. On the screen, whatever version Jason pointed out, uh, put up there, it says, you were en- enemies in your minds doing evil deeds. But the sermon was on Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. And there were some more words in there. You were powerless, ungodly, uh, sinners. But then we got to verse 10. And verse 10 hit me like a ton, ton of bricks. I realized, I've read Romans plenty of times before that, but there's something that hit me that day that really just changed everything. And verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies. Jason says this a lot, that we were God's enemies. And I remember sitting in Cup of Joe Cafe on North High Street in Columbus, Ohio. I wish you could have taken a picture of me as I had this thousand-yard stare. And I just remember thinking, wait a second. I, before I became a Christian, I was an enemy of God? I was an enemy of God? That's really scary. That was really scary to me. I could have gone in one, or, one of two directions. I could have turned pretty dark and just been totally unsure of where I stood with him. But I went in another direction, and I, I just kept on thinking, wait a second. I took it a little further. Jesus Christ died on the cross for his enemies? The king of kings died for his en- Who Who does such a thing? Where do we see this throughout all of human history? And I was, this is amazing. This is, this is amazing. And then, fast forward a few years, I became a father. And then I became a father of sons. And then it hit me. God the Father sent God the Son to die for his enemies. And that's where I I have to throw my hands in the air because we've been given the love of Christ. We have been commanded to love our enemies. And I think about myself and I think, would I be willing to die for my enemies? I have enemies, you know, enemies who I've loved. And I would say I have been a jerk, you know, I just, I have enemies. Would I die for them? And all right, pragmatically, I have a wife and five kids. Let's get that out of the way. No is my answer, but get that out of the way. And honestly, at least in my mind, I would, I would say, yeah, conceptually, I would be willing to die for my enemies. But God the Father did not spare his only son. And so 
I have three boys, if I were to ask myself, would I be willing to do the same thing? I've got to be honest. You are not touching a hair on the heads of any of my sons. And that's where I have to throw my hands up and be like, he is so much greater and I am in his debt. And it was through the outworking of that that, at least for me, you know, this is what happened. Changed everything. And that's my encouragement to you today. God and man, understand, know God. And if you know God, it will come hand in hand that you know yourself. All right, last thing I want to say. To those of you who are, I don't know, you're, you're not sure about this Christianity thing. You're, you're here, you're visiting. Uh, listen, I am so thankful that you are here. You are welcome here. I want to be clear about that. And I also want to tell you from God's word, you are an enemy of God. You are an enemy of the king of the universe. Now, any other king, I would have to then say, I'm sorry, there is no hope for you. You are not welcome. You are not welcome in this kingdom. But this king sent his son to die for his enemies. And my encouragement to you is to turn from your enmity, to turn from your sins, to ask Jesus to save you. And then you will be welcome. You will be no longer an enemy, but a friend and a child of God, an heir. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. Jesus, we thank you for coming and dying for your enemies. You are a great God. And our worth is that we are made in your image and that you, that, that we have you working in us, Lord. I pray that we would acknowledge that, we would see that, and we would see that you have all authority in heaven on earth. Let us go. Let us teach the nations to obey you, Lord. Help us, Lord. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.